This is Rabbi Neet Leah Sarna and Rabbi David Wolkenfeld. Shalom and welcome to the Straw Hat. We are the official podcast of Anshe Shalom B'nai Israel Congregation, an Orthodox synagogue in the beautiful Lakeview neighborhood of Chicago, Illinois. This week's episode has three parts. First, we'll be discussing a topic that we've been learning about after Shacharit and our daily minyan, um, which is yard sites, when they're observed, how they're calculated, um, how they're observed, um, questions like that. We will segue from there into a discussion about the Parsha, particularly focusing on the commentary of Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch. We'll talk about who he is and two of his insights into this week's Parsha, Parsha Kitetse. And lastly, we'll have the opportunity to have an interview with our executive director, Steve Miller, um, and he will actually tie in to the subject at hand, and he's going to be talking a little bit about yard site plaques, the way they're ordered in the show, where we get them from, things like that. I hope you enjoy the episode. So some of our listeners know, but all of our listeners probably don't know, that every weekday morning following Shacharit, we learn a little bit of halakha, and then there's a Kaddish Rabbanan that's recited, and then we continue with our, with our morning, gafyomi, coffee, both, neither. Um, <laughs> and uh, for a number of months, the halakha that we've been studying are the laws of Avelut, the laws of mourning. And I've used a recent book that was published by Rabbi David Brofsky. He is... Um, uh, an Israeli, you know, American-born uh, Israeli Torah educator. He lives in Lunchfood. He teaches at a number of institutions, among them uh, Midrash at Lindenbaum. Uh, and uh, it's, a, it's a neat book. It, it's a mix of, uh, like, sort of basic, helpful, uh, practical guidance on Hilchot Avelud. He actually, the book has, like, a like a 10-page digest that you just read quickly when, God forbid, mm-hmm. one needs to learn these laws very quickly. Which is good because I think most people need to learn these laws very quickly. Yeah. Very few people kind of growing up, they might observe someone else correct, correct. keeping Hilchot Avelut, but the practical instruction yes. is not nearly what people typically might get for Shabbat or Kashrut. Correct, correct. So it has that. You can read you know, a 10-page uh, digest in, in, uh, in 10 minutes, but it also, the book itself is uh, several hundred pages and combines, again, practical, reliable, um, bottom-line halakhic guidance with a little bit of EU and a little bit of uh, some of the um, conceptual underpinnings and theoretical um, basis for some of these laws and practices. And we are actually nearing the end of our study through the book. And this week, we've been learning about the observance of a yard site, the anniversary of, of a death. And and it's actually interesting. Uh, it was interesting to me to, to uh, be reminded of a uh, debate in the Achronim, in the more recent halachic uh, scholars, about how and when to observe the first yard site, which is, uh, according to some, different than a subsequent year. Subsequent years, the yard site is, as we just said, the anniversary of the death, but there are some who suggest that in the first year it should be observed on a different day. And that's because, in addition to observing a yard site in the first year for when a parent dies, one observes mourning practices, such as not attending weddings or, or parties of, of various kinds, for a full 12 months. And that 12 months of mourning starts... Uh, the date of burial when Shiva begins and continues for 12 calendar months from that um, date of burial, which could be somewhat different. If there's a day or two or three delay from the time of death until the burial, then there could be a divide. So for example, today as we're recording is, if we could divulge that secret, we're recording this on <laughs> the 9th of Elul, somebody who is buried this afternoon, Shiva would begin this afternoon and the the child's 12 months of mourning would end on the 8th uh, of Elul, one year from today. 
Okay, so that's that's easy enough. But if the person died uh, two days ago, let's mm-hmm. say on Friday, and for whatever reason the burial couldn't happen until today, so then the arch site would have been on the sixth of of Elul, which could be confusing in that first year. That they may think, okay, we observed our first yard site. Now I can go to a wedding. Now I'll go to a wedding. Now etc. And and really they should they should wait until the full twelve months uh, have ended. So some suggest that. In cases just like that, where there is a substantial delay of burial, only in those cases the first yard site should be observed uh, on the anniversary of the burial. Uh, others say, no, even in cases like that, you can still observe the yard site on the anniversary of the death, but just be careful <laughs> and, and, not, and make sure that your 12 months of mourning uh, continues for as long as it should. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and do you want to just say a word while we're talking about Yartzeit about how the first Yartzeit ties into Kaddish? Sure. So the custom of mourners Kaddish as it develops in the Middle Ages is very much tied with the understanding, the sense that the behavior of children can influence the place of our of our parents especially, and others who have shaped us and whom we loved uh, in, in the world uh, to come, in the world of truth, wherever they, they find themselves af- after death, and that we can improve their condition and their situation and impact them through our actions. Uh, Kaddish, uh, as I like to say, is a metaphor. <laughs> it's a metaphor for living one's life in a way that sanctifies the name of God. Uh, like the significant way to do that, the challenging way to do that, the hard way to do that is to, uh, through your ethical conduct and good deeds and the good reputation that you build and establish for oneself, that reflects on those who taught you Torah, on the Torah itself, and even on God. That's to be Makadeh Shem Shemaim, to sanctify God's name. Uh, the actual prayer of the Kaddish is a, is a metaphor for that, because when one says the Kaddish, one causes a congregation to say, May God's name indeed be blessed. So it's a metaphoric expression of sanctifying God's name. So the custom is to say Kaddish for following the death of a loved one, especially a parent, for, you would think, for 12 months. That is the length of time, according to many of our traditions, in which those who need some sort of punishment, some sort of purgatory process, are, are receive that punishment for 12 months. And so Kaddish would be for 12 months, but you wouldn't want to make that kind of... Uh, assumption about the dearly departed, and so the practice is to say for 11 months. So at least, you know, 11 twelfths of the suffering you've taken care of uh, <laughs> through the cessation of Kaddish, uh, and that way you don't, you don't impugn anything negative or untoward about uh, the dearly departed parents. So Kaddish would be 11 months. That's 11 calendar months. So we are coming, uh, and this is like the end of a leap year, a Jewish calendar year with 13 months. So uh, somebody might, um, Kaddish would be 11 months. It would end, you know, not just one month prior to the anniversary of which uh, the burial when Kaddish began, but would actually end uh, two, two calendar months, two calendar yeah. two Hebrew calendar months prior to that the start of Kaddish when, which is the date of burial, uh, because of that extra month that was two months of Adar that were thrown in. And also, um, in our show, we say Kaddish even for people who haven't kind of appeared in person to say Kaddish. So yes. what's that process? Sure. Like? So that, that's thanks. Thanks for asking. <laughs> um, I, I say Kaddish at every opportunity when Kaddish is said, and when if I'm not around, someone else says Kaddish uh, in my place, and uh, I, I do so for, for two reasons. One is just as a pace setter, um, to say it loudly and slowly, uh, hopefully at a pace that everyone can keep up with, and so that there's not uh, pandemonium, when, which you see at some, some shuls. Um, also, some people, uh, especially women, don't always feel confident um, saying Kaddish by themselves or loud enough to be heard by others. So if there's a pace setter who's saying Kaddish loudly at every single opportunity, that I think can make it more comfortable for others to join in and add their own voices. Uh, I also say Kaddish on behalf of uh, two, I guess, three different groups of people. One are members of the congregation uh, 
uh, who die. I think that's you know if you uh, if you if you die while while being a member of our congregation, like that's that's part of the benefits of membership. Is uh, I say Kaddish for for uh, for the full eleven months. Uh, that's one category. The second category are people whose surviving relatives have asked that they be placed on our Shul Kaddish list. It's mostly members of the community who don't think they can make it to Shul every day or know they're going to can't make it at all or can't make it frequently or they, you know, and, and so they for make some nominal donation of any amount that they feel is appropriate and uh, we add their the name of their dearly departed uh, to our cottage list. There have been people I've sort of come across who have no connection to the community but they know that we provide the service and it's been sort of meaningful for them to know that uh, that our congregation, great decent people who pray with <laughs> us are, 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 are memorializing their dearly departed because they may live in some place where there is no dominion or they're not able to make it to shul regularly because of their other commitments and so that that's, their names sometimes also make their way to our cottage list. And the final group um, are people who who have uh, their surviving family have endowed a memorial plaque. Uh, those are those brass or bronze, I don't know, uh, uh, plaques that are uh, in uh, on the walls of the shul and on the anniversary of the death. We also say Kaddish for them in perpetuity. There are people who've even saying Kaddish for more than 100 years uh, since they've died because they are, there's, a, if there's a memorial plaque, then that, that, that is a uh, perpetual memorialization that we do. And there's another memorialization um, taking place in our shul this week, which is this week was the yard site of the entire community of Mariupol, Lithuania. Correct, correct. Yeah, yeah. So this, this as when Anshay Shalom was founded, it was uh, founded by a group from Mariupol, and they had immigrated here in the 19th century. Uh, and those were the, the lucky ones, the, those who stayed behind, many of their parents and grandparents and cousins and siblings uh, were, were all killed in 1941 uh, and uh, those earlier stage of the Holocaust. And so we... we and, of, and, and on a single day, meaning... Yeah, that was, that was pretty common, actually, in, in that part of uh, German-occupied, like the, the parts of uh, Lithuania and, and the Ukraine that had been, you know, uh, recently occupied by the Soviets and then counter-occupied by the invading uh, Germans, those Jewish communities were wiped out often in single days uh, in, you know, people shot in, in mass uh, in mass graves. It was actually, I, I just recently read uh, Timothy Snyder, a Yale professor, a history of the Holocaust called Black Earth. And I had you know, grown up with the knowledge of the Holocaust, like my entire conscious life, I had never known that the majority of Jewish victims were uh, never interned in a concentration camp, but were shot to death with bullets in these uh, uh, early uh, weeks uh, following the German invasion of uh, the Soviet Union. Yeah, well, I think they, they kind of, my understanding is that they explored various methods of killing over time. There was like development. But in different places, like they never, meaning the entire, like before anyone was gassed, the entire, virtually the 100% of the Jews of Lithuania and Ukraine had already been shot, shot before yeah. they ever, you know, then, you know, so. It's a, a, a very sad history and, yeah. and a profound history, but it's a very powerful book. So I recommend my book, book recommendation is Black Earth by Timothy Snyder. Yeah. So as you were teaching these rules about um, Yartzeit, uh, a number of people came over with questions. It seemed like this was an exciting topic for a lot of people. Yeah, look, there are a lot of people in our Daily Minion who are who are saying Kaddish. That, that's an important uh, constituency of people who are saying, yeah, and, and they had similar questions about just, just to clarify, you know, because coming off a leap year and it's been may already be 11 months for them or coming up on 11 months, even though it's still two more Hebrew calendar months until the actual date of the death or the date of the burial. So they wanted just to clarify the proper conduct and... Uh, 
and and uh, yeah, so that's and, and I'm sure you know there are others maybe listening who have similar questions. Obviously, they can reach out to us for any clarification that would be necessary. Of course, and then also this morning you mentioned before this year is confusing because it's a leap year. The other piece that's interesting is on a leap year, if your yard site, if you usually observe a yard site for somebody in the month of Adar, um, so so what happens when there's all of a sudden two months of Adar? I think we talked about this actually like during Adar, right? I think it's, I think so too, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's, uh, we can go back to the, the I guess the real uh, um, very, very um, enthusiastic podcast listeners will compare. Well, no, compare. Uh, yeah, it, you know, in uh, if, if someone dies during a leap year like this one, so then the yard site would have observed in a you're with just one Adar, that's very easy, that you only have one option. And in leap years, you'd observe the art site in the appropriate Adar in which the person died. Uh, if someone dies in a regular year and then in Adar, so then there's some say the first Adar, some say the second Adar, uh, some say both. Um, you know, the second Adar, you know, Purim is in the second Adar, maybe that's the real Adar. Mm-hmm. Uh, but maybe that's just about Purim. Purim should be connected to Pesach for all sorts of reasons having to do with those two holidays. Uh, and maybe the first Adar is the real Adar, and maybe Zerizim Maktim in the Mitzvot. We do Mitzvot of the first opportunity, so observe the Yartzit the first occasion. Um, my practice has always been to observe it twice. Um, I, I don't fast on, on the art site as some people do, so it's not that hard for me to observe it twice. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, So yeah. let's let's actually go off of that and talk a little bit about your art site observance. Sure, 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 absolutely. What, what does one do on a, on a art site? So on a art site, one um, makes a special effort to attend shul so that one can, uh, where possible, lead tefillot and or recite mourner's kaddish uh, with a minion at Mariv, that night when the Yarshit begins, Shachrit the following day, and then Mincha that afternoon. Uh, one also tries to do extra mitzvot that day, extra Torah study, extra donations to tzedakah, mm-hmm. um, and uh, a day of memory and a day of commemoration. Again, fasting was a very, very common practice on a Yarshit. I think many of these fasting customs have sort of fallen by the wayside. Somehow fasting isn't quite as easy for many of us as it mm-hmm. once seemed mm-hmm. to be. Uh, but that, that you'll find a lot of lot in the halakhic literature about fasting on a yard site. I think, uh, you know, I've personally never done that. I don't know if, if mm-hmm. others do, but uh, the Kaddish people do and, and donations at tzedakah and, and it's a day to remember the person and, and think about them and their legacy. And there's also a special prayer that, that's recited. So the ark, the Ashkenazi prayer, the Kelmalei Rachamim, is a memorial prayer that's recited either on the yard site or sometimes shortly before or shortly after. That's that real. That is a pledge to tzedakah. It's a Hebrew ritualistic pledge to tzedakah. It's done connected to Torah reading, so it can be done like the closest Torah reading day to the yard site, so the Monday or Thursday before usually. Uh, many shuls do it the Shabbos afternoon prior to the yard site. Um, and that's also available if anyone wants, and that would be when this prayer is recited. We don't recite it on like you know days when we skip Tachanun, so depending on when the yard site is, you might need to uh, say it a little bit earlier or a little bit later, yeah. So now that we've talked about commemorating deaths, um, there's actually a tie-in to our Parsha. One of the challenges that arises with Yorzite observance is that the date of the death is not necessarily the date of burial. But actually in our Parsha is where we get the encouragement to bury swiftly. Um, in where I lived in Washington Heights, I lived next door to a non-Jewish funeral home. And I was always struck that people would go to funerals. There was like this cultural thing um, where people would go to funerals with shirts with the face of the departed printed on them. And I was always like, wow, no one would have time to print shirts <laughs> in our community. <laughs> um, that's right. I, 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 yeah, that's... <laughs> I had the thought, you know, when... Uh, 
someone commented on, on some online forum following the death of uh, Senator uh, McCain, mm. who had the state funeral in D.C. and then the funeral back in Arizona, and mm-hmm. then the train he back and forth, you know, and all these different ceremonies. Wow. I'm like, wow, it's gonna, you know, not uh, not how we would do things, right? We really have a priority <laughs> on speedy burial. I think I think we used to be even speedier. Mm-hmm. Uh, now that we're living, you know, the close relatives, even the children of uh, themselves of someone who dies, could be living in two or three continents, and it may take a little while to get everyone in one place for a funeral. It's understood that delays that are really, really in keeping with the honor of the deceased, like enabling their own children to fly in from Israel or Europe or wherever they might be, is 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 seems to be appropriate. But that's always held against the sense that um, it's just it's just wrong to delay burial for unnecessary reasons. And those two obviously those two values are intention, and we. And there's been some, I think, like delay creep over the over the mm-hmm. decades, but we still try to do things as quick as possible. Right, and not in every community. Meaning the Satmar community, if someone dies at 4 p.m., they're going to be buried that night. We don't really bury at night, or most modern. I've never seen a modern Orthodox community that does burials at night. Um, uh, it's done it's in Israel. I think that's like in Yushalayim in particular, and I think uh, throughout. I think maybe more ubiquitously in Israel, there is a sense that you bury as soon as possible, even at night. And I think, like especially in Yerushalayim, like they don't allow, uh, you know, a, a corpse to remain in the city overnight, and they'll they'll do late, late night burials uh, mm-hmm. if if that's what the timing works out to be. So yeah, but in America, yeah. usually you yeah. would just wait until the next day. Um, but there are even American communities um, that will bury at night, and I've even been. I went to a Satmar funeral mm. at night one time on the streets of Borough Park, mm. and. Um, that's that's what's what's normal in their community because they take a mitzvah in our parsha very seriously. Yeah, so I wanted to like say something about the mitzvah. It, it's uh, the, the the mitzvah concerns somebody who was um, executed by the court for some capital offense, uh, and this person is hung up, strung up on a on a tree. That seems to be something that was done after his execution as a way to intimidate people, you know, like, don't do what this guy did. Uh, and then the Torah says, Lo nivla don't let his dead body stay there um, up on that tree or up on that wooden um, stake. Ki tik bury him on that very day. Um, and uh, it's very striking that our tremendous sensitivity and all of our hakbada, like all of the, that energy we put into speedy burial, is derived from the example of an executed criminal. So, like even the more so, somebody who was not a criminal. Right? You want to mm-hmm. make sure we return them to the ground as 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 quickly as possible. So it then goes on to say, um, it's sort of hard to know how to pronounce it. Ki, I'm going to say ki klilat elokim talui. Okay, uh, it's actually could either be you know that, that's it's either uh, the cursing of Elohim. The judges uh, is hanging because you know it's, it's like somehow disgrace. People are going to say bad things about the court system if this dead person is hanging there. But the other interpretation, and this is I think the direction that Rashi uh, points us to, is that it's like kilat Elohim talui. It's it's a, an affront to God to have an impaled corpse, a dead human being, hanging there on display. Rashi. Uh, you know, like if it wasn't a Rashi, you wouldn't say it, but he, he, he gives a mashal, he gives this metaphor of, of a, a, a two brothers, one becomes Well, first the, he explains, know. right? First Rashi says, right, the reason is because man is created in the image of God. Um, and so it reflects on God to have a, a, a human hung up there. But in a very right. anthropomorphic way, right? Not, not that, oh, this human being created the image of God, did this terrible sin, and that's kind of a shame, right? You know, this soul is from God, and 
this person made such poor choices. Uh, that's like a nice philosophically sophisticated way of saying that. But what Rashi actually says is that imagine a king who has a brother who becomes a criminal and that brother is executed and you see the twin brother of the king, you know, impaled uh, by the roadside. You think, oh my goodness, the king is hanging there uh, impaled as though seeing a, a human body, uh, one might mistake that for seeing God. Uh, that that seems to be like the, the basic understanding of what Rashi's saying, a human body. A well, disgraced ex- human disgraced body hu- reflects on a disgraced God. I think that's the idea. Because we look the same. Right, which is crazy. <laughs> it's, it's a ve- it seems to be a very anthropomorphic uh, kind of understanding that our physical bodies somehow are reminiscent of God in some way or reflect God in some way. Um, actually, you find that elsewhere, you know, in the... Uh, you know, you know the scholar B.T. Roe pointed this out to me years ago, uh, that if you read the Mishnah in Masechet Sanhedrin, where it describes all the ways of executing criminals and for mm. the various kinds, um, they're not like the way you would like imagine them. Like in, right, in the, in, like it's not like we can, we have one that we call strangulation, and it's nothing remotely similar to what we, we would call, consider yeah, strangulation. Yeah, yeah, we don't actually decapitate. We don't do yeah. the things that you would like imagine just from like reading how they're described in the Torah, and they're all they're all forms of killing people in ways that, relative to what the words might suggest, preserve right. the bodily integrity of right. the person and sort of maintain that, and maybe again reflecting this this sense that comes from this verse that um, our body is not just our ability of free will and our souls, but our bodies themselves also in some way are reminiscent or reflect God's image, right? That's what the mm-hmm. Torah says. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, and uh, and therefore, we bury our dead right away. We don't, you know, certainly if, they're, you know, if they're beloved people and even if they are, if they're criminals. This is why, you know, I'm so, so um, like, uh, disturbed by that, that um, you know, that the bodies exhibit that's been on tour in yeah. all sorts of cities around the world. It, these are, uh, I think they're they're like I don't know executed Chinese criminals like which like it's I don't know you can't get and there are all sorts of ethical questions about where the bodies came from and did they consent and yeah but all e- that. even if they were like I don't know like a whole bunch of like you know mass murderers executed justly by know, <laughs> the Chinese government uh, even so right it would still not be appropriate to have their physical remains on display in you know. Um, for a purported scientific uh, value. I mean, it's not, you know, there's one thing, medical research is its own topic for a different day. Mm-hmm. Uh, this but is this an- is not medical research. When I remember when it came to Boston when I was a kid, um, there was a lot of discussion about it in the Jewish community, I mean, broadly, and also in the Jewish community. And um, one of the arguments that people made is that there's a big thrust in, in that exhibit towards educating people about health issues. So you get to look at what a smoker's lung looks like and a miner's lung and what a healthy lung should look like. And you really, you never get to see that when you you're a, I don't know, a, a non-medical professional, or, I guess. Or what does um, what does obesity look like from the inside? Mm. Um, I think if you're, you know, if you're a surgeon, so great, you've seen what that looks like. But uh, a random person hasn't, and 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 the body exhibit gave people an opera was was like a really strong educational tool towards um, public health issues. I think that was like the main ar- argument for. <laughs> um, but those things could all be learned from pictures and don't need to be learned from from human bodies. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. There are other ways to teach that, and that's I, my sense is that was like a post facto justification for something after the controversy, you know, emerged. I, I don't my, my sense from seeing pictures online of the exhibit that there was really a goal of entertainment and profit. I think he, um, the person who founded the tour, he started off in Germany and he was sort of like chased out of Germany. They said like, we don't do this here. Mm. This is like not up to our moral standards. And he then came to America and made a lot of money touring America major was like, Great. in American <laughs> cities. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, a 
strongly, strongly condemned not exhibits and attending it. Uh, and, and again, it comes really directly from this like core, core sense. And whether or not like Rashi anthropomorphism, whether that speaks to us or whether we find that plausible or not, I think there is uh, something sacred about the human body that was it, it housed our housed our soul while we were alive, and therefore it's returned lovingly to the ground after our deaths. Yeah, so there's actually, just to, to connect that into the next piece of the Parsha, there's a um, a chapter uh, break between um, between the part we were just talking about and the next part, but the next part starts to talk about the rules about Hashavara Veda, returning lost items. And um, Rav Shimshon Rafal Hirsch, who lived in Frankfurt, Amine, and I'm sure you have a lot to say about him, um, but I'll just say this and then you can maybe say a word about him. Um, <laughs> I, I know it's a community that's close to your heart. Um, and, um, Rav Hirsch felt that these two rules are intimately connected, that the um, the body of the deceased is like a lost item, that, that the core of the person has has moved on to the next world and they kind of left this important object behind <laughs> and it's our job to kind of take it in and take care of it. Um, and and to make sure it's treated respectfully, just the same way that someone you know who's still alive who lost their ox, we, it's our job to kind of take their ox in and and try and return it to that person. If it can't if it can't be returned to that person, then we bring it into our own home and 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 do our do our very best to to ultimately get it back to the owner because that's that's the the care that we take of other people's items and and so too the body of the. It's deceased. a beautiful idea. That's something almost like kind of whimsical about the idea of this. You know, deceased individual who was like, "Oops, like, they, oops left they, it behind." They okay. went up to Shemaim and left my body behind. Do you mind, yeah. like, watching it for me? You know, please watch it for me. Uh, uh, but it, I mean, it, with a belief in the resurrection of the dead, it's right. actually it ties in kind of yeah, nicely. Like she's gonna need her body. I'm gonna again. need that back. <laughs> yeah. Right. I'm gonna come back and claim it. Please take good care. Yeah, beautiful. That's lovely. That's really, really, uh, I think, a lovely idea. Um, and yeah, again, just leaving the metaphysics aside, I think just the the ethics of it, the pure ethics of uh, this was this crucial, crucial possession of, of a human being. And they can't take care of it anymore, and they can't watch over it, and they don't necessarily need it right now. Um, but let's not discard it. Let's not treat it disgracefully. Let's return it to the earth in a dignified um, loving way. And that's, by the way, just it's obvious, but I think it always bears saying part of the reason why we bury quickly is because nowadays we can like refrigerate a body or something like that. You know, we can keep a body in fairly decent um, shape. That was not always an option. I mean, famously, Yosef is um, embalmed. embalmed, right? And so is Yaakov, I guess, embalmed in the, um, in the, at the end of Breshid. And, and the Egyptians obviously did have ways of preserving bodies. I'm curious whether you think looking at mummies, how that compares to the body exhibit. <laughs> um, but, all right, so they did have ways of preservation. But if you if you ever learn about what embalming involves, it's it's actually quite invasive mm-hmm. um, and, um, and a quite intense, obviously, process. And so, right, but a quick, swift burial is also part of just making sure the body doesn't decompose because that's actually also disrespectful to the body. Yeah, yeah. Uh, mummies are actually have their mummies at the Field Museum, which uh, is yeah, certainly raises at the Met. There's, yeah, certainly raises a lot of issues for Kaimim. I know the CRC maintains a list of museums in Chicago that have human remains, and therefore the Kaimim should avoid. Uh, mm-hmm. those, certainly, those wings of the museum, if not the entire museum itself. Certainly, uh, I, you know, this is actually a person. You know, it's not. I don't know. This was a human being who, just like us, who uh, lived and walked and breathed and spoke Egyptian and whatever. You know, and, and that, <laughs> I, you know, just because they died a long time ago doesn't make them Art. any less of a human being. Yeah, who was created with Salam Alakim, who mm-hmm. you know may have 
I don't know, like spoken to a mushroom venue. I don't know whatever it is, right? right. But, like I, I, I think that same ethical sensitivity is is uh, uh, should be provided to that. You know, I don't know that we're, like it's. It gets even more exciting. What about um, like uh, fossils of like Neanderthals or whatever? Wait, what's <laughs> I the line? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's fossilized. Maybe it's turned to stone. I don't know if it's like quite the same. Uh, I, I, really, I have absolutely no idea. Absolutely no idea. <laughs> so I, 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 I can't say anything remotely intelligent about that. But um, I could also say the difference between uh, like we're not going to have a successful campaign that the Field Museum should like commit all of their mummies to like proper burial in the earth. I don't think that's like that. I feel like that, <laughs> ship, that ship has sailed, but um, I don't think there's anyone in Egypt either who is like claiming them and wants them returned to burial. As far as I know, I think they have other, other claims, not, not on the, not on, not on the people. Not themselves. on the burial front, but yes. maybe on the, you pillaged our items. Yeah. Front. Different, different issue. Different <laughs> issue. Um, but as opposed to this like body, which is an ongoing, you know, uh, money making uh, profit, like, driven business model that is uh, procuring uh, dead human remains under very, very questionable legal and ethical circumstances from, you know, authoritarian governments without democratic uh, process of due process. And, and uh, that's, it's a, which I, you know, is absolutely an outrage and no one Jewish or with any influence of Judaism in their lives should, should pay one penny to, you know, go see the bodies exhibit. I feel pretty strongly about that. Okay, uh, so back to Egyptian <laughs> Prowler. Do you want to say a little bit about him, and then I want to share another another idea that he brings about the Parsha, which I think is really great. Sure. Uh, he wow, uh, remarkable life. He sort of brought um, revived Orthodoxy in in Germany uh, after a period of time where Orthodoxy was really very weak, uh, and uh, sets out this model that became you know the, known as uh, neo Orthodoxy or Tartim Jerech Eretz that one can be a faithful Orthodox Jew, deeply committed to every element of traditional observance, uh, and also uh, be inspired uh, by the best of the surrounding culture and be a contributor, a good citizen uh, amongst, you know, our non-Jewish uh, neighbors. And that's a model that uh, is somewhat different from modern Orthodoxy as it develops in in America, you know, a generation, several generations later, but mm-hmm. is still a model that I think has a lot of power. And, uh, you know, I think as an institution builder, he was... Uh, uh, you know, left behind a very powerful legacy, albeit also a controversial one. Part of that, uh, another part of his legacy was was this deep uh, insistence that only uh, observant Orthodox Jews could be in any position of power in any Jewish organization, and therefore he demanded that, uh, and without a lot of success actually, but he demanded that his uh, students and followers completely secede and separate themselves from the the Gemeinde community, the, the the general Jewish community, and he uh, is able to get a law passed in the German government through the German government that uh, was in Prussia that you could secede, you could form a separate Orthodox community uh, that was completely distinct from the broader Jewish community, and so uh, every community, you know, cemeteries and and uh, um, and synagogues and schools and orphanages and older homes all then were you know had to fall into one or two camps and had to be divided. This was a very very divisive fight in Germany. As the same thing happened. Uh, some years earlier in Hungary, uh, and uh, this is the topic of Jacob Katz's wonderful book, mm-hmm. which in English is called A House Divided, uh, and uh, uh, Eastern Europe, things took a different direction. Uh, I think uh, the modern Orthodox community, historically going back generations in the United States, took a, also a very different uh, uh, direction, and uh, the alternative position, which was even the majority opinion in Germany, I think even in Frankfurt was the majority opinion, was that no, it was okay for Orthodox Jews to remain part of the general Jewish community uh, as long as we have our own autonomy to maintain our religious affairs uh, without influence of others. And we could, you know, as long as we can guarantee Orthodox standards for our own internal religious life, we could 
uh, remain a part of the broader Gemeinde Jewish community. Right, and and part of I mean he he had many pieces to this project, and one of them is a beautiful commentary on the Torah. Um, and part of the project of it was to draw people into Orthodoxy. Um, it's written in German. You can find translations into English and into Hebrew. Um, but it's it's just full of like values and. It's beautiful. And- I would just say yeah. I would say actually, if you're going to read it, you know, you know the. It's always nice to read things in the original. Uh, I feel like no reason to read it in Hebrew if, like, since it wasn't written in Hebrew. It's but, just uh, available more easily uh, in Hebrew. That's there, there's the actually there's a nice, um, there's like a one volume English edition of mm-hmm. his commentary, which is sort of like like an excerpt, like sort of like the best of his commentary, which is according to the person who decided. So it's yeah. a little bit less of the kind of speculative etymology and more mm-hmm. of the like the values and the ethics and right. the really creative interpretation of Torah stories. And uh, that was a very influential book to me when I was a teenager. And uh, I still look to it from time to time. Mm-hmm. He was a very, very uh, astute reader of the Torah, and uh, yeah. his moral sensitivity was really high. And he saw all of the little details of mitzvot and like sort of coalescing together in a really beautiful, coherent, big picture. And that was like really... So just one more example yeah. from this week's Parsha. In, in the discussion of Ashavada Veda and returning lost objects, the Torah says, I think three or four different times, a prohibition on lehit alim, a prohibition on ignoring. Um, and and so there, there's these two elements of you must see or you will see and you must not ignore. And he ties them together very beautifully by saying... Don't don't see without looking or don't look without seeing. Mm. Right? Like when you see things, like take them in. Don't just mm. like, oh, that's a chair over there. When you see a chair over there, should that chair be there? Very Does nice. it belong to uh. somebody else? Where is it supposed to be? What is my responsibility vis-a-vis it? Just like there's kind of reading and reading and listening and listening. So too there's seeing and seeing. It's so nice. This reminds it, you know, like there's a famous passage in Russell uh, Isha Halakha Halakhik Man, where he talks mm-hmm. to the Man, sees the Goes sunset and it's Shkia and sees a spring. Oh, this is a mikvah and that's a, a of uh, boundary and just you you apply these a priori halakhic categories but here it's, it's between people that's what's and that's ethical, what's even beautiful, more beautiful, beautiful exactly it. yeah. Yeah. the truth is that's in the halakhic man also he also talks about not in the, that particular passage but yeah, <laughs> but he, yeah, no, yeah. he says the like span includes the interpersonal as well this right. is like very nicely like uh, foregrounding the ethical right like a, you know and I think we could expand and say okay here's a chair who does it belong to should it be here uh, could someone trip and hurt themselves over it but also like how is it made like uh, were the labor mm-hmm. practices fair were, were the mm-hmm. um, materials procured in a sustainable way uh, is there somebody who needs this chair more than more who, who should have it who doesn't have a place to sit mm-hmm. I don't know whatever right so I think that's uh, once we start thinking in that way um, ethically and, and from a Torah perspective on even mundane items we can really take that in, in really wonderful directions Absolutely. So just a little bit about Rav Hirsch and the Parsha. Great. I'm here with Steve Miller, our executive director. What is an executive director? Uh, well, an executive director here kind of does a little of everything. Oh, it, so like like all the rest of the staff. It, it, it's kind <laughs> of like other shows might have three or four positions, um, but I do everything financial. Uh, I oversee everything about the building. Uh, the staff, it just kind of an all-encompassing, I schlep and I, <laughs> I I do whatever needs to be done. Don't we all? Yes, you do. Um, and you were actually in shul this past Shabbat for the Wokenfeld Bar Mitzvah, a rare sighting. <laughs> I was, and a lot of people made a comment that they never see me outside of the work week here. And <laughs> it was nice to see a lot of people who I only see you know, once or twice a year. Uh, others I see very, very often, um, but good to see Why do you also. see those people so often? Uh, we have some regulars who come in here daily, oh. um, and 
so you know to check in or drop things off or to daven and 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 other similar. people who only show up on Shabbat might only know you from emails or the bulletin or something like that, right? They they wouldn't know what I look like. They they would know my name and would have to be told who I am. And I probably knew half the people there, but didn't know the face to the name. Yeah, that's funny. I should have gone with you and been like, "This is this person." <laughs> yeah, I, I needed a guide to point out certain people, but I, I've met a lot, especially uh, at the soiree. Oh, right, I've, I've at the met soiree. And I, I feel like you actually know a lot about people, even if you don't know what their faces look like, which is exactly. sort of funny. Yes. Like, oh, you love going to that event. <laughs> uh, that sort of thing. So that's great. How did you end up working for Anshay Shalom? I am a residential architect. And after the recession, I needed to try to figure out something different. And my daughter was starting kindergarten. And this was close by. And I saw there was a part-time bookkeeper position. And I said, what the heck, I'll try for that. And um, David Harris, our then president, said, well, why should I hire you? Because you're just going to leave in two months. And I said, no, I'm not going to leave in two months. You know, I'll stick around for a bit. And there had been a fair amount of turnover, so mm. they took a chance. And then within a week, it went from part-time to full-time. Yeah. And in six months, I was asked to take over. And that's been over seven years now. Wow, seven years. It's a long time. Do you feel like you ever get to use your architecture skills? Occasionally, uh, when we have different projects in the building, um, you know, with a potential larger project happening in the future, I've been able to give some input that other people might not think of. My favorite um, Steve, the architect moment was when you were telling me about how much you don't like the Shoals logo because the perspective is off. It is. Yes. <laughs> I was like, hmm, I never considered that at all. Having drawn so many perspectives in school, <laughs> I really, yeah, it, I want to clean it up, but it's not my position to do that. So, uh, but may, maybe in the future... With our 150th anniversary coming up, uh, it we'll might have a it, correctly perspective. It, it might be time to, <laughs> to update the logo a little bit. Great. Well, uh, we'll see if uh, we'll see if any of our listeners have feelings about that. Maybe they'll make something happen. Um, so this episode, we've been talking about yard sites, um, and one of, as you mentioned, you do kind of every single thing in the shawl. Um, but one of the things you do also is you order the yard site plaques for the shawl. Yes. So can you tell us a little bit, what's the process like? If I wanted to order a yard site plaque, what would I do? But then also, who makes these plaques? And like, where do they come from? So if anyone wants to get a plaque, they can contact me or Haley in the office, and we have a form that we can email or sometimes people come in and want to fill it out by hand uh it's a pretty simple form just you know with the name date some simple information mm -hmm. uh then rabbi i feel like the hardest part is spelling of hebrew name exactly probably. we then give it to rabbi wolkenfeld and he takes a look and he makes sure of the spellings so he will give me the information that I need to actually type it out he will then triple check that before we send it off to we have a local engraving company mm. that I think it's just a one or two person shop and they basically just hand create these plaques for us and it's wow. not a very quick process <laughs> but we've been using them forever and it's great to support a local company that's been doing this for us for probably decades. 
Wow. Uh, how long does it take, just if, if people are interested? It really depends on... Uh, he does them in batches, mm. and it could be a month after we submit, or it could be three months after we submit. Mm. So if somebody turns it in saying that oh, that we have a yard site in two weeks and we want to have this plaque up, it will not get there in two weeks. But if someone okay. plans ahead, then you know we can certainly get it up. I recently became aware that there's options beyond just... So when you say yard site plaques, I think of the plaques in the, around the back of the shawl. But there's also like leaves or something that you can get on that tree in the lobby. Yeah, so we have the memorial boards in the main sanctuary, and then we have the tree of life in the lobby. And we've got two different sizes of leaves that are possible there. And those can be for any type of occasion. It doesn't mm -hmm. have to be for a yard site. It can be in honor of grandchildren being born or any sort of you know, major life event. Uh, sometimes it will be in memory of. Other times it can be you know, something more joyous and welcoming. So we have two different sizes available for that. And then we have larger stones that you know, really were done early on, and mm -hmm. I, no one really does those anymore, but there's no reason to not do them anymore. And those go to the same engraving shop. They go to the same engraver, and those are a quicker turnaround because we send the actual leaf to him, and then he just ah. engraves that as opposed to having to actually create the mold and pour the metal. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, are there any other kind of ways that people can commemorate um, departed loved ones through kind of physical things in the show? We've had some people make larger plaques. Uh, it can be in memory, and if someone wants to sponsor an item or a room mm -hmm. in the building, we've had that. Uh, we have the electronic luach in the Beit Midrash which was sponsored, and we've got a different plaque for that. Uh, we have in the library a few different plaques for different people who've left us amounts uh, for different things. Yeah, so it seems like there's all sorts of different ways to kind of commemorate loved ones. Re really from, you know, a simple way to you can kind of get as grand as you would like. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining us and explaining all of that. It was a pleasure to have you with okay. us on the it, show. It was nice to actually be part of the podcast after it going so well for so long now. Yeah, great. So thanks for having me. Of course, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Straw Hat. As always, thank you to Healy Leventhal, our producer, for all of her hard work in making this happen, especially during this season as she's trying to process all of the high holidays seating requests. She works hard these days, seriously. The fact that she got this out is amazing. If you have positive feedback for us, we will take that in any way you want to send it to us. We love voice notes, emails, in-person conversations. All of that is great. Um, if you have negative feedback for us, you can bury it. Um, Anshi Shalom has a burial plot on the south side and also um, some on the west side so you can like go out there. Don't dig any holes too close to any graves. That would be a disrespectful thing to do. Uh, okay, have a wonderful week. Thank you so much for joining us on the Straw Hat.